We live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting, proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org liberating. The following episode is a throwback episode, one that was published previously and was extremely popular. To see the details of when this was originally published, see the show notes. Enjoy this throwback episode. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, like this podcast, which we hope you will subscribe to. We also have a website at leadingsaints.org with thousands of incredible articles all about leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. We host virtual summits, live events, and also have a weekly newsletter to keep you up to date on all things happening with Leading Saints. Visit leadingsaints.org for more information. Today, I had the opportunity to sit down through the powers of the internet with Ryan Gottfriedson. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Kurt? Awesome. Now, uh, what background does the audience need to know about you and what brings you here to this microphone? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you, Kurt, for always letting me participate in whatever you're doing. I'm happy to support your cause. And I love its focus on leadership because that's what I focus on. I focus on leadership. So I'm a leadership professor at Cal State Fullerton, and I'm also a leadership consultant. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what more That's do what comes to mind. What's that? What more do you need in life other than a PhD after your name and uh, teaching at a college, right? I mean, you are an expert. <laughs> well, I, I try to be. I mean, it's a passion of mine. In fact, I first got into leadership when I was in high school and I took a sports psychology class. And I fell in love with it. I read some great books. I remember them. I read a book by Mike Krzyzewski, a book by Rick Majerus, and a book by Pat Riley all in one semester. And I thought, man, it would be sure would be cool to have a job in which you could study leadership all the time. And at the time, I didn't know anything about organizational behavior. And then I went on my mission to Boston, Massachusetts and happened to meet a professor at Harvard Business School who taught organizational behavior. And I said, hey, what's organizational behavior? And he essentially described what I had covered in my sports psychology class and it kind of clicked. This was for me. So that's what I did. I did my PhD at Indiana University, landed here at Cal State Fullerton, was here for a couple of years. And then I did a, a year leave of absence where I worked with Gallup for a year where I did employee engagement and customer engagement work for about 30 organizations over the course of that year. And then now I've been back at Cal State Fullerton for the last year or so where half of my job is research on leadership, half of my job is teaching leadership. And then I guess the other half of my job is going out into the community and uh, doing some consulting and speaking on leadership related topics. Yeah. I mean, so you're living the dream. I mean, you, you grew up at doing what, to, what you wanted to be when you were little. <laughs> yeah, and still trying to make it happen. So yeah, that's cool. And you know, you mentioned organizational behavior, man, you know, if I were to go back to school again, I think that's the direction I'd head to. I think that's what makes us spirits and, and uh, that's why we love Elder Bednar because he literally wrote the textbooks on 
organizational behavior. Yep, for sure. That's awesome. Well, and the reason I wanted to bring you on the podcast, and I hope this isn't the last time uh, the the audience hears your voice on podcasts, but you wrote, like I mentioned, you write a variety of articles. I encourage anybody to go check these out. They can just uh, search your name on leadingLDS.org. But there's one that you recently wrote on the topic of communities. And as you dove into this topic, it uh, became apparent that one simple article wasn't going to cut it. So maybe tell us what led you to deciding to write on communities. Yeah. So I I don't know how many articles I've written for leading LDS. My guess is somewhere around 10 or so. And I had a friend uh, who I go to church with and he really enjoys my articles. We went out to dinner one day and, and he said, Hey, can I give you a challenge? I said, sure. And he said, do you mind writing an article about community in the church? And I said, at first I was kind of like, no, that's, I'm not a big fan of community. I mean, I'm, I'm an introvert. I don't necessarily go to church to socialize, although I I surely enjoy doing that. And that's an enjoyable part of going to church. But I was kind of of the mindset, like, I don't think that it's that important of a topic when he first asked me. And so he kept pushing me on it and shared a little bit about his experience within our, our ward and, and other wards that he's been a part of. And he had just always felt like he didn't necessarily belong and that he was really itching for a sense of community within his wards. And he, he hadn't been able to find that. And so he was wanting me to write an article that might be able to help him. And so I said, you know, for you, I'll, I'll dive into it. I'll see what I come up with. But I really wasn't very hopeful. So I started to, to dive into to it, start doing some reading, start doing some writing. And very quickly, I realized that there's a lot here. And this is a very important topic. And one that I think many people are how I was, where they don't see necessarily see the value and importance of community partly because they've always found community in the church. But there's a significant proportion of members of our church that do not find community within our church. And hence, they're not attending with us. You know, I don't know what the activity rate in the church is. It's always said to be about 50%. So we know that about 50% of people don't like attending church for whatever reason. But also for those that do attend church, there is this, this... a significant minority of people who attend church on a weekly basis, but they don't feel like they're part of a community within their wards. And that's a challenge for them. And so if we can help better help them, but also in in more particular, better help leaders understand the role of community so that they could create communities within their ward where everybody feels included and accepted, then we're going to be able to do a better job of making our wards a place where everybody can grow closer to their savior and partake of the gospel. Yeah. man, Well said, you know, because when you talk about community and as you started to dive into this and your articles, you sent your articles to me, I thought, Oh, this will be great. You know, because I think the church does a remarkable job at community. I mean, we have these wards and these auxiliaries set up. I mean, the quorum, I mean, what the quorum is like synonymous with community. Right. And I think this is important to, to, really underscore here is that for a lot of individuals like myself and maybe even for you where you know you grew up in the church you have a very traditional background like 
I love the community of the church. And, and part of my heart broke when we retired the three hour block because like, oh, that's one less hour that I get to spend with my, with my people, you know, and, and, <laughs> but it's important to realize that we're not talking, we're not going to go into this because, uh, you know, the church, we're, we're, we're saying the church does a bad job at this or it needs to improve. The, the, the point we're doing is if there is anybody, I think any leader would agree, if there's anybody in their ward who feels like they're not part of the community, that they feel almost rejected from the community, that I think most leaders would want to know why and how to fix that. So that's what we're looking at here. For sure. Yeah, and I agree. And one of the things that since writing these articles, I've been reflecting on this topic. And and one of the things that I've seen, and, and I, I'm sure every ward sees something different, but I'm not so sure, like when I look at my particular home ward, I can say that there's kind of, that there's been anybody who has left the church within our ward. Like they, nobody that I'm aware of has just stopped coming in the last several years that I've been a part of the ward. Yeah, but yeah. what I have recognized as I thought about it a little bit more deeply is that there have been families that have moved away and that now I've just, I've learned that they've stopped going to church and they kind of use that moving away as a way to step away from the church. So I think as a ward, we kind of say, oh, we're doing a great job because nobody's left the church. But then we don't think about the people who moved away and use that as an opportunity to stop going to church. And there's several families that come to mind that I think about that who's moved away in the last several years that no longer attend church. And I just, I wonder, you know, what could we have done before they moved to help keep them or at least create a place that would be more likely for them to connect with other people in a, in a healthier way than maybe what they were able to do. So let's, let's dive in here. And, and again, as leaders are listening, let's just, we're, we're just doing this. Let's just step back and analyze this from an ab- academic perspective at times and, and, and not, and don't tie too much emotion to it as we go through here. Cause there's, there's going to be moments where you think, Hey, that's my community. Don't pick on my community, but I promise it's, it's worth it. So let's talk about you. You talk about in the, in the article, these three basic or these three uh, community types. One is basic, involved, and united. Would that be the best place to start in this discussion? Yeah, I think so. And I think the way, one of the things that I wanted to help leaders do with these articles is not think about community from the perspective of the leader, but rather think about community from the perspective of the individual members and how they could possibly see their particular ward as being different that there's different ways that people can can see the ward. And while I identify three, the way that I want us to think about this is largely on a continuum from being attached, being strongly attached to the ward on the high end, and then very little attachment on the bottom end. And so there at the bottom end, one of the labels that we could put for a type of community where there's little attachment is called a basic community. So if somebody feels like they're a part of a basic community, they share some similar characteristics with the other people within that community, but they have very little emotional connection to that community. And so an example of a basic community for me personally is I'm a BYU alumnus, but I really have no connection to BYU or its alumni groups at the moment. So when I meet somebody who's a BYU alumni, then we're able to connect and that's great. But outside of that, it really isn't adding a whole lot to my life. So there's some pros and cons here. So 
A pro is there's little demands on my time being a part of this community. But a con is that there's very little connection that I have with other people within that community. So that's the basic level. We cover that okay? Yeah. And another part of that is on the lower end of that spectrum doesn't mean you've rejected that community. You haven't rejected being, you know, a part of BYU. It's just, you just have a lower connection. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Then about involved community. Yeah. So as we, we start to move up this continuum and then we can classify this maybe as an involved community. So we're sharing more characteristics we have with the community. We have some emotional connection with the community but we're still independent from the community. We don't necessarily identify personally with that community, partly because we probably don't exhibit all of the same interests, goals, and beliefs that that community promotes or espouses. So again, when we see communities in this light, it has its pros and cons. So we can experience some of the benefits of the community, but at the same time, we maintain independence and emotional objectivity to that community. But the cons are is we oftentimes feel pressure to conform and we don't necessarily feel fully accepted within that community. So an example of this type of community for me is where I work at Cal State Fullerton. So Cal State Fullerton is a large university. It's 40,000 students and it doesn't have a any, well, it has an athletics program, but it's not very strong. So while I'm a part of the community being a professor, I really am not involved very strongly with things going on on campus. I'm not going to plays. I'm not going to athletic events. So I kind of have a little emotional connection. But at the same time, if somebody were to criticize Cal State Fullerton, I wouldn't be hurt if they criticize Cal State Fullerton. Because I kind of see as this objective observer of Cal State Fullerton, I see its pros and cons. And I'm not necessarily attached in such a way that I would be offended if somebody criticized Cal State Fullerton. The next uh, type is united community. And I think this will be the crux of much of our discussion. Yeah, for sure. And so a united community is when we share many of the same characteristics with the community, especially the interests, goals, and beliefs associated with the community. And then also we have this strong identification with the community such that if the community hurts, then we hurt. Or if the community is happy, then we're happy. If the community receives scrutiny then we have a tendency to get defensive. So an example of, of this type of community for me personally is my family. So we share the same characteristics. We share the same culture, largely the same beliefs. And we identify with each other to such a degree that if somebody's hurting, then, then we all hurt. So a pro about a united community is that in these communities, you find acceptance. If you're lucky enough to be a part of that community, you're energized by the community, you receive support, you receive love, you also receive protection. But, and we, I think that a norm within the church is that we should have these united communities because there's a lot of really great value within these communities. But one of the things that we don't talk about a whole lot is some of the cons associated with these communities. And there are some cons, but it's hard to see those when you're intertwined with all of the great aspects of this community. So it's, it's hard to see when you're, when you're intertwined. But if you were able to step back a little bit and look at that united community, there are some drawbacks, which I, I think we'll probably get into. But before we do yeah. so, I want to see if you want to jump in with anything, Kirk. Yeah. 
So it, it seems like I think anybody listening to this would say, you know, wow, the United community sounds great. You know, we're, we're everybody identifies really closely with being a Latter-day Saint. You know, they want they feel they feel a great sense of pride. They feel like they're they're engaged and, and they have a, a purpose there. And so that may seem to some that, yeah, that's our goal to get that United community. But at the same time, being a United community has some drawbacks and many times we don't see these drawbacks up front and the only people seeing them are those on the outside of the community. And it confuses us in the inside community because we think, well, why don't they like us? Right. So maybe go through what are some of these drawbacks that happen because of a United community? Yeah. And and maybe even before I do, let me just mention that, you know, our church and particularly from its, its founding up until really the last maybe 50 years, we've kind of continually secluded ourselves in a way from the rest of the world. So the church was formed. It obviously bumped around between Ohio, Illinois, Nebraska, out to Utah. And in many ways, we had this united community that was traveling and it was a form of protection for a lot of people. And so we've got to realize that community really is ingrained deep within our culture. And in addition to that, there's scriptures that attest to some of the importance of having a strong community. You know, one of those being related to our baptismal covenant, where we're talking about being willing to bear one another's burdens and to mourn with those and mourn and comfort those that need those that stand in need of comfort. In the Doctrine and Covenants talks about be one. And if you're not one, you're not mine. And so the desires to have a strong community are doctrinally founded. But what we've got to pay attention to is some negative unintended side effects that occur within these strong united communities, particularly when people strongly identify with those communities. So I think this is like such a valuable point that you make is that the fact that we have We've done a very good job in the church and in our in our history of the church to create a united community. And for many years, it was like a protective mechanism and it, and it worked quite well for us. And the, I guess the problem we run into now is some of those traits carry over into these modern times where we're not being attacked. We're not being run out of town. You know, we're trying to branch out and blend more into our surrounding communities. And so sometimes these united communities uh, were, were there. But we're, uh, it's not being for our benefit a lot. And so I think that's a crucial point that recognizing that it has helped us quite a bit in the past, but now it's sort of becoming a, a detriment to our progress and success. Yeah. And so, I mean, just to visualize this, if we imagine if, if we have a castle and we have this land and we build up this large wall around our castle to keep the negative influences on the outside out then the wall is doing some really great things in terms of protecting us, but it's also preventing some things from occurring, such as bringing in outside thought and ideas, or in other words, cognitive diversity. And so that's the first negative unintended side effect of having a united community is we have a tendency to not think outside of what is our box. And so what ends up happening is oftentimes it creates this closed loop where essentially the same information is presented over and over again. I'm not saying that information is not unimportant, but 
And it's, in some ways, that information gets stagnant unless we bring in some outside or different perspectives. Um, so on a, on a cognitive level... Can I make a clear distinction here? that Because I have conversations with people about this concept. And wh- what we are not saying is that we're not saying open our doctrinal box to uh, diversity of thought. We're saying open our communities to diversity of thought. Because so many people are hear this and think, well, no, 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 no. Like, don't mess with our doctrine. Like, our doctrine is not... Uh, is non-negotiable, right? And and that comes from our prophets and leaders. And and so I want to be clear that as Ryan is saying this, he's talking about opening our communities to diversity of thought, right? Would you agree with how I'm saying that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it's not necessarily we're, we're wanting to change doctrine, as you had mentioned, but there are some pieces of information, like let's just take, because we're going to eventually come to this topic. Let's just take the idea of charity. Well, Charity is a topic that I've spent a fair amount of time studying. And if we just stick to what is in the scriptures and even by prophets talks, one of the challenges about charity is either one, it's it's never clearly defined or there's people that define it in very different ways. And so it's hard to, to understand what charity is, but there is a lot of people and academics that have been studying essentially topics that are very similar to charity And we can learn from them on the outside to better inform how we think about and develop charity within our community. So it's not changing any doctrine. It's just exposing ourselves to ideas that maybe we just haven't thought of before. Or even, I mean, we've had instances where we've had visitors come to our ward from out of the country. And just hearing their perspectives of the church from what, what they experience is really eye-opening, but we we just naturally don't get that because we're kind of we meet with the same people all the time. So our cognitive diversity is a little bit limited in those ways. Perfect. And then this also plays into psychological safety. Is that where you're headed next? Well, yeah. Maybe just let me quickly identify. So a couple other unintended negative consequences of this United Community is so we talked about cognitive diversity. Second is a lack of inclusivity. And so what happens is when we create these barriers that protect our castle, oftentimes these barriers make it very difficult for people to enter into that community. There's some barriers to entry. Or another part of this is if people within the community do things that aren't necessarily socially acceptable to people within that community, then they either get, they have a tendency to be shunned or else feel like they were judged. You know, a classic example of this is an individual who has multiple piercings in their ear. And I think that most people, I would like to think that most people don't treat them differently, but talking to people who have that, oftentimes they feel like people look at them funny. Or I've heard instances of people who work at the temple and they have a tattoo and they're treated differently. And it's just because there's, we've got some very strong morals and values. And so when people go against those, there's, and we are mindless about it instead of mindful, then sometimes we have a tendency to, and unintentionally, maybe judge them or shun people who are like that. So as a whole, and a negative unintentional side effect of a united community is it lessens the inclusivity within that group or community. And I love that. It's not that whether that person is really being judged or not, the community experience has created this feeling that they should be judged. And so they sort of project that, that on themselves, which is hard, right? For sure. And, and it's something that we, 
I personally don't think we should undervalue. And just to give you a quick example and experience that I had is I, I used to be the Sunday school president in my ward. And when a Sunday school teacher was out of town, oftentimes I would step in and substitute for that class. And so one Sunday, I stepped in and substitute for a youth Sunday school class. It was about 16, 17 year olds. And the class happened to be all girls. And so I invited my wife to come with me. So I wasn't the only one with these, these girls. And there was ended up being about, uh, if I remember correctly, about six women in the room, including my wife. And one of the questions that I had them all at, write down an answer to, which was, if you could change one thing about our ward, what would you change? Curious of what the answers were. In fact, I had them, I allowed them to select three answers. And afterwards, I had us all share what our answers were. And there was one answer that every woman in the room gave. And that one thing that they all shared in common that they would change about our ward was that it would be less judgmental. And I don't think that that's unique just to my particular ward. But I do think that women in the church maybe are a little bit more sensitive to than men to that, but it also affects men as well, is that there is there are people within our communities that feel like they can't be fully accepted within the community. Or another way of saying that is they feel judged when they attend church. And it's not necessarily that people are doing that intentionally, or even that there's many people doing it. But it is something that leaders need to be sensitive to. And they need to have a pulse on whether or not members feel that way. I'm curious how much, and I don't want to send you off a different road here, but because there's sort of this dichotomy within the church that obviously we, we set high standards and we talk about standards. We also talked about doctrine. And that's like one hat that we wear. But then there's this other hat of, of love and acceptance and unconditional love that we also try and wear. And so balancing this, sometimes we shift over to this love and acceptance, you know, we'll take you for who you are, where you are, but that individual sometimes still feels like you're in the standards, you're wearing the standards hat or the, the, the doctrine hat thinking, oh, well, you're not living up to the standards, right? And so it's sort of this mess that, that we get ourselves into, which means, which all goes back to this topic of community where if we're aware of this, I think we're more likely to approach these situations better and make everybody feel less judged because we know how they feel judged. So another experience that I had that I wrote about this in, in one of the articles was I was in our one of the classes at church and I was asked to read a passage of scripture. And so I got this little slip of paper at the beginning of class about the verses and they invited me to read them and then maybe come up with, with some thoughts that I could share with the class as we came to that part of the lesson. And so I had read the verses. I was thinking about them. We We got to the point where we started to cover that section of the scriptures. And so I commented about a couple of things related to that. And in this particular book of scripture came from the Old Testament. And it was involving a, a dialogue that was occurring between, if I remember correctly, Solomon and the Lord. And one of the things that I mentioned as a part of my comment, and this is partly because I had to teach a lesson a few weeks before from that same book of scripture. And one of the things that I learned is that particular book of scripture, experts can believe that it was written 600 years after everything transpired. And so here I am left to try to interpret a conversation that occurred that apparently was written 600 years after that conversation occurred. And then who knows how many translations it had been through until it got 
to what we're reading now in Sunday school. And what I, so what I just said in, in Sunday school was, you know, I'm not sure how much weight I'm going to put on the word for word nature of this comment or this interaction. But here's some of the main points that I took away. And I, and I expressed some of those main points, but it was very interesting to me because afterwards uh, the, the instructor opened it up for other comments and there was four people who commented and three of those people didn't talk about the verse of scripture. Rather, they came kind of directed their comments back towards me and suggesting that it's really important that we take the scriptures literally. And what happened after the class was what really was interesting to me. And that was after the class, a couple of people came up to me and they, you know, were kind of joking around. Wow, you got put through the, the ringer in there. And you know, I didn't necessarily feel that way, but I could see why they would say that. And then after church, I'm walking out to my car and a gentleman comes up to me. And he says, hey, I really appreciate your comment. I really struggle with the Old Testament, partly because of what you, what you said. So I really appreciated your comments in there. And what, what then transpired is this understanding that because I, I had said something that people in the room didn't necessarily agree with, they were quick to, they kind of saw it as a fire and they were quick to put it out. But then what ends up happening is, is, and what, what they, they unintentionally don't realize is that if there are other people in the room that struggle with that same issue, how likely are they going to be in speaking up in that class moving forward in the future? And so this gets at what what you were leaning us towards earlier is this idea of psychological safety, which is when we have this strong united community, we identify really strong with the church and something gets brought up that we don't necessarily agree with. Sometimes we react in a way that we want to very quickly dismiss whatever was brought up. But when we do that, we create an environment where people don't feel comfortable expressing their ideas and opinions. And when people don't feel comfortable expressing their ideas and opinions, they don't feel like they're part of the community. And so, as you mentioned, this is a balance thing that's really tricky because we really value the idea of truth in the church, but we also value the idea of loving others. And so when somebody says something we don't agree with, you know, we usually have to, we have a tendency to take a stand on one or the other. Do we put our truth foot down or do we put our loving and accepting foot down? And some people do a better job of one over the other in those instances. And well said, absolutely. Because many times we can, you know, that those classes become about being, sometimes people feel like they need to be about being right or wrong, where you were just sharing a perspective, right? And so, like you said, that they were hurrying to put the fire out because they perceived a threat to, and they became defensive as far as how you were defining the scriptures. When in reality, you were just sharing a, a diverse thought, right? And, and that's where the clash happens and the community wins over in a negative way. Yeah. So, it, and it's tricky, you know, again, how do you balance this? But I, I think you're right is sometimes we have a stronger desire to be right than we do to love others. And if we're really, and what we, what it go, these articles go on to talk about is if we're really mindful about how we handle ourselves within these communities, we should not emotionally react to things that we hear that we don't necessarily agree with. Because it's when we react to those types of things that we put on ourselves in a position 
that we make may make other people feel uncomfortable. And we may make it so that other people don't feel comfortable being vulnerable with their own doubts and fears and insecurities. But it's only when people feel comfortable to be vulnerable that they really do feel like they're part of the community. And so when we when we have this strong desire to promote at least what we think is right, oftentimes what we're doing is we're preventing the community from building and strengthening. Yeah, so true. So I just want to recap here where we're at so far, because we're, we're spending a lot of time in the weeds here, which is good. I mean, this topic is in the weeds and we need to go there. So we've defined about the importance of community. You've defined different types of community. And we have come to the conclusion that typically the Latter-day Saint experience in, 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 the, in the church is a united community, which we've identified a lot of positive things about a united community. And now we've just finished talking about some of the unintentional negative negative consequences of having a united community, right? Yeah. Good summary. Yeah, that's where we're so at. Where do we go from here? Because obviously the question is, well, what are, we, what, what are leaders supposed to do about it? You know, what what's the goal of the community and what form of community should be be striving towards and, and what are some things we can do to get there? Yeah, great question. So we need to create communities that have the benefits of a united community, but also not have those negative unintended consequences. And so what I call these communities that do that are intentional communities. And the reason being is we leaders in the church need to be very purposeful and deliberate about bringing in certain elements within the community that ensure that people feel accepted and safe within the communities, but also there's not this really strong emotional identification that when somebody says something we don't necessarily agree with, we don't get on our own little soapbox and tell them why we don't think that they're right. And so there's six elements that I think are necessary for an intentional community. So let me just spout these off and we could dive into any of these, Kurt. So these six elements are charity, safety, or this ability to speak up without fear of negative repercussion. Openness, which is this desire to seek truth regardless of the source and a willingness to hear new ideas and different perspectives. Inclusiveness, which is this willingness to include many different types of people and treating them all fairly. Being present within the community and also having a clear purpose and a common cause that the community can rally behind and direct themselves toward. Because I think when when we're in a a period of safety, then sometimes we kind of start facing each other as opposed to facing in a certain direction that we can all head towards. So if we can have a purpose that everybody's rallying behind, then I think we're going to have less issues within our communities. So those are the six elements. I'm happy to dive into any of those if you feel like yeah, you need me, to. Let me just touch on each one uh, to see if I understand and then you can... You can uh, further clarify. So one being charity, the way I see this is that you start with love. Obviously, charity, the doctrinal purist uh, def definition is the pure love of Christ, right? That we just we just start with charity in a Sunday school class in our neighborhoods that uh, we, we don't jump to judgment. We just try and love. Is that what you're trying to get across? Yeah. And even at a deeper level here is, and I mentioned this earlier, is I think charity is a tricky topic because we don't have a great definition of charity within the church. One of the definitions that I have heard it comes from a source outside of the church, although they are members of the church 
that wrote this is they, they taught, and this is the Arbinger Institute who wrote the book Leadership and Self-Deception and Anatomy of Peace. They talk about charity as seeing other people as who they truly are, which is as people and valuing them as such, as opposed to treating them or seeing them like objects. And so that's, that's maybe one way that we could think about this is within an intentional community that we see everybody as people and we value them as such. Yeah. And I think this is so crucial because it's easy, especially for leaders. I've been there that you sort of start with the doctrine and the truths of the gospel, and then you worry about the people, right? You've So when anybody like in your experience brings up something that's maybe they don't agree with, or isn't, you know, uh, perfectly wrapped in this doctrinal box, we tend to try and defend that doctrine first. But if we all just start and say, all right, we're people here, let's start with the people and start with love and knowing that the doctrine is there, that they'll get to the doctrine, that they'll benefit from the doctrine, but we got to start with people first. Yep, for sure. And I think sometimes when, when leaders do, maybe in some instances, they'll, they'll take a stand more towards doctrine or more towards the handbook. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but when they do so, they're coming from a place where they don't want to do something that's wrong on behalf of the church. And so I understand, I, you know, I, I completely understand how bishops can be in a situation where they want to a protect the church and b protect themselves, which they should. But ultimately at the end of the day, you know, one of the, the core aspects of the gospel is having this charity and seeing other people as people and valuing them as such. And again, there's going to be a balance thing that comes in, but it, if we can, infuse charity uh, where people see each other as people, um, that's going to be a core element of an intentional community. Uh, next one is uh, safety. And this is just basically, I would say a good litmus test, litmus test for this is if you're sitting in your gospel doctrine class, ask yourself as a leader, do people feel safe in here? Do, do I hear alternative perspectives and, and, and views? Not that they're like false doctrine or way out there, but is there a mix of perspective or, or is it just an echo chamber? Is that a good way to explain it? Yeah, for sure. And this is one of the areas, and we talked about this really early on in this interview, where I think the leaders have a tendency to be a little out of touch, or they can be a little out of touch with this. Because leaders within the church, bishops, elders, quorum presidents, Relief Society presidents, they feel really safe in the church. They feel really safe to express their ideas and opinions. And so they oftentimes presume that everybody else feels that way. And so, but that's not necessarily the case. In fact, after we had uh, an elders quorum meeting at church and it was about establishing greater unity within our quorum. And afterwards, I went up to uh, one of the counselors in our elders quorum presidency. I said, do you think everybody in this room feels like this is a united group? And he's like, oh yeah, we're a great group. And I said, you know, I don't know about that. What if we were to collect some data on this? And so we've got some ideas in the works to actually survey the members of our elders quorum to see how safe they feel about speaking up during our elders quorum meetings. So we'll, we'll see if that happens. I love that idea. And there's nothing wrong with surveying your, your ward, right? Passing, it can be a, a, anonymous, but yep. nonetheless, you, there's great value in, in collecting data not just making assumptions about you know everybody seems to smile when we when we're here and 
everybody tells me, ask them how they're doing. They say, fine. Oh, they must be doing really good. Yeah. <laughs> but to just allow them an opportunity to survey your group and you'd be surprised maybe what the data shows. For sure. Especially, when, I mean, we've got a huge elders quorum. So we got about 50 people who show up every week. And so you can't, I mean, you just don't have time for everybody to even comment during an elders quorum uh, lesson. So doing something like a survey allows people to express a voice in a different way than the typical commenting during church on Sunday. Perfect. The third thing you mentioned as far as creating an intentional community is uh, having openness or a desire to seek truth. And the way I see this sometimes is uh, we get we sort of hold on to the truth claims of the church, which are important, which are doctrinal, which uh, we need to talk about. But sometimes that causes us to talk about nothing else and don't have any ideas outside of this box because we're living in this box right now, right? But creating some openness uh, is important. So what does that look like from your perspective, right? Yeah, so we, and this is my experience within the church, is that there's kind of a social, there's social pressure towards knowing things in the church and towards certainty about certain principles in the church. And I'm not saying that's fully bad, but when we place value on knowing things above learning things, then we're not, the knowing things is going to stand in the way of learning. And so it's really important that while we want to know things, it's more important that we seek after truth. And as a part of that, that we recognize for ourselves that we may not know everything. And we would be wise to embrace the idea that there are perspectives beyond our own that we can learn from. And so if we could carry around that mindset, then we're going to do a better job of creating an environment where cognitive diversity can come out and also inclusivity. And so we've got to recognize that maybe while we think or feel like we know things, we've still got a lot yet to learn. And we've got other perspectives to hear from and that we would greatly value from hearing different and oftentimes diverging perspectives because that will push us in our learning and obtaining of greater truth. Yeah. And to me, this goes back to the principle of if you validate an idea, that that doesn't mean you agree with that idea, right? And this is what I love uh, reading. For example, I love reading books written by Christian pastors about their perspective and experience with Christianity. And though I go through it and yeah, I could probably circle big paragraphs saying, well, that's not doctrinal, that's not doctrinal. But nonetheless, hearing about the gospel from their perspective, it enriches my gospel experience and helps me gain a deeper faith and understanding of of core doctrines. Yep. All right. Uh, The next one is inclusiveness. Just what what does that look like, right? So... It's the basic idea is that everyone should feel welcome. They don't have to meet any certain requirement to feel welcomed and loved when they come to church. So as the saying kind of goes, it's not our job to judge. It's our job to love. And so when we go to church, we shouldn't let little things, maybe it's a tattoo, maybe it's their skirt is a little short, whatever it might be. We shouldn't let that get in the way of us loving them. And we have probably all heard examples of you know, some young man or, or young adult male who comes to church and his hair's all unkempt and people just joke around with this hair. Well, that type of a joking probably isn't going to get him to want to come to church the next week. It's actually loving them, caring less about how they work, look, and m- more about how they're feeling and how they're doing. 
And so that's, that's the idea is we don't let little things get in the way of us loving other people. That one example that uh, recently came out of the, the leading LDS audience was a member of a bishopric was sitting in a sacrament meeting and their sacrament was being passed and a member of the state presidency was sitting next to him. And the state presidency member leaned over and said, do you realize uh, one of your deacons is wearing shorts while he passes the sacrament? And he leaned over and said, yeah, we're aware. That's just where he's at right now, but we're, we're encouraging him. And the, the state presidency member totally got it. And it's like, okay, you know, that makes sense. You know, where rather than, you know, walking over before the sacraments pass or removing that young man from the, the, the group that's going to pass the sacrament. I mean, that, that's what I think you're saying about inclusiveness, knowing that we take people where they're at and continue to encourage them in love. Yep, for sure. That's a great example. The fifth one, as far as uh, creating intentional communities that leaders can do is be present. This one, I wasn't entirely sure what you mean. So one of the things that is important to recognize is that everybody has their own weight on their shoulders in terms of the amount of time that they could commit to their local church community. And so we shouldn't necessarily make other people feel bad for not being more involved because oftentimes we just aren't aware of what's going on in their lives at the moment. And so we, part of this is we shouldn't put place any undue pressure to be engaged when they don't, when they've got a lot going on outside of their, outside of their church world. But at the same time, when, whenever people are a part of that community, whether it's going to church or at an activity, when they're there, it's really important for them to be present with the community. And, you know, I'm probably as guilty as any, anybody when I'm a little bit bored in Sunday school or whatever it is, I just hop on my phone and start surfing the internet or whatever, right? So that's the opposite of what we want to have when people go to church. So if we want to have an intentional community, we've got to create an environment where people are engaged and they're present with everybody else who's a part of that community. This is where you mentioned sort of having, having really like really being intentional about your the different activities or lessons, like analyzing your meetings as, as a bishopric and saying, you know, or, or as a word council and saying, let's talk about the Christmas party. Like, was that worth even getting out of, out of bed for? Like we got a good amount of people there, but is it worth their time to come to that? Or what about Sunday school? You know, how's that going? Is that worth coming to? Right. Is that? Yep. Yeah. I think one of the challenges of our day and age is, particularly when it comes to, let's just say, sacrament meeting, is we could go online and in a couple instances, get some really awesome general conference talks or BYU speeches or whatever it might be. And those, in many ways, are going to be quite a bit better than the talks that we're going to hear at church on Sunday. And so, which are oftentimes talks about the great talks that we heard in general conference. And so, one of the things that leaders need to recognize is there's a lot of other sources that people can turn to more readily than what they could in the past. And particularly for the millennial generation and now the Gen Z generation coming up is if you're not providing value in our meetings for those people above and beyond what they can get elsewhere, then they're kind of like, why didn't I just stay home and watch a general conference talk is part of the part of what's going on. So it's really important that we create, we intentionally create meetings worth attending. And that's going to help create this inclusive community for sure. And that's part of, in the fourth article you wrote, uh, you gave three things that leaders could do. And that was one of them, plan meetings and activities worth attending. And, and maybe we'll, we'll end off with those, but we got to hit the last one. The sixth, what is this? The sixth 
element for creating intentional communities is having purpose. And, and I guess that plays into what we were just talking about of just making sure that it's so easy, I think, in the church to get in, go through the motions, just do what you do every week, right? But to really step back as a leader and say, how can I infuse each, each member of our community's experience with purpose? Yeah, and, and particularly for, for church leaders, bishops, elders, quorum, release society presidents, they maybe an introspective question that they could ask themselves is, am I trying not to have problems or am I trying to create something? And there's a difference in, the, in those mindsets and how they operate. Because when a leader operates from a position of, I just want to avoid any problems and any hassles, then they're, they're not going to create anything that's exciting, that people want to get behind. And, and it's really important for leaders in the church to have a clear purpose, clear goals, and clear objectives that they're shooting towards. And it's when they have those, that's, that's when people want to get behind the leaders and support them in creating something that's great. And maybe one of those goals is creating an intentional community by infusing these six different elements. But that's, that's the idea. So we could get everybody headed towards a, an objective, then there's going to be less issues about people not feeling psychologically safe when they go to church because everybody's headed in the same direction. We're all on the same team and we need to help other people within that community feel that way. Awesome. Well, uh, and I don't want to pack too much into this, uh, into this interview, but I encourage people to check out the, the four articles. And, and as we wrap up, Ryan, I mean, unless you have a better idea here as far as how to, how to end this, in the fourth article, you give three, three uh, ideas or tips that a leader could do to be more intentional about their community. One being, which we've just talked about, focus on intentional community elements, charity, safety, openness, inclusiveness, engagement, or I guess uh, being present and being purposeful. And then you talk about planning meetings and activities worth attending. And then the last one I think is really fascinating. I think maybe we can end our discussion on this is creating smaller communities within the ward. And what I think is so fascinating about this one is that you'll hear often sometimes in wards saying, oh, my ward is so clicky. You know, there's all these little clicks and I just, it's, it's awful. Or, or leaders will complain like, man, I can't understand why my ward's so clicky. I wish, I wish that wouldn't be the case. But in reality, on the other side, I've sort of looked at this like clicks. I mean, obviously there can be a negative tone to clicks and, you know, people segregating others from, from their group group. But sometimes you need these smaller group communities so that every individual in your community can find that, that sub community that they really fit into. Is that what, what you're going for? Hank? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, nobody's calling the ward choir a click, right? And so th there can be some clicks that develop and, and then they, they come with their own pros and cons for sure. But if we could create opportunities for people, people to connect with other people on a, on a closer level, and particularly within these smaller groups, that's going to be beneficial. And that's, I think that that's a challenge right now for our ward. As I talked about, our elders quorum is really big. Our relief society is really big. How do you connect when you've got 50 other people in the room? And so you've got to be creative. And I'm not sure the best ways that, that leaders can do this. But if leaders can think about ways of breaking up these groups into smaller subgroups and allowing people to self-select into those groups, that's going to help them feel like they're more a part of the community. It's really daunting for some people to walk into Relief Society and there's 50 or 60 other women in there and they kind of just feel by themselves. 
it's going to be much more approachable for them if they feel like there's four or five people in there that they really connect with. Or And so how you create that, I'm not sure. But I, I think that that's something that leaders need to be cognizant of. I think that there's also, as you say, that there's kind of this idea of we need to avoid clicks. There's also on the other end of the spectrum, I've seen some church leaders said, well, we can't have a ward activity and not invite everybody to it type thing. And so, but if church leaders can allow maybe even individuals within the ward to start their own informal groups, maybe it's a book club, for example, that largely pulls from members within the congregation, that's going to help in strengthening the overall intentional community of the ward. And so I think leaders, particularly as we're moving going to be moving to two-hour church, this is even going to become more tricky than what it currently is. Well, I was just going to say in in that context of two-hour church, to me, I think this is a great opportunity because Elder Cook mentioned about this opportunity to create informal uh, study groups. I don't know the exact language he used, but I think this is a great opportunity for uh, leaders when we go to the two-hour block to to look at um, certain, maybe they maybe they recognize there's a family that sort of seems on the outside of the community, right? And they really want to reach out to them. And well, maybe they could go over to their neighbors or somebody else in the ward and say, "Hey, would you mind inviting them over to your home for uh, one of your your in-home worship sessions, right?" And just see if you can include them in that, right? So to me, there, I think there we've been given some some leverage here to to try some new things with with groups and uh, on a more informal basis. Yeah. Great. Well, Ryan, do we do it? Well, do we, do we, this has been great discussion. I, I've learned from it and I was afraid we'd get into the weeds too much. We were there for sure, but I think we've laid it out in a way that leaders can walk away and do something. Any Anything else we're missing? No, I, I again, I think the reason why I wrote the articles and really the reason why we are having this conversation is I think both of us, you and I, Kurt, want leaders to better understand what community is and why it's important. And that not everybody sees their ward as being the community that they think it is. And so it's really important for leaders to get the voice of the people about how they're feeling about their community. Do they see it as a basic community, an involved community, a united community, or hopefully they're seeing it as an intentional community? And so it's important for leaders to really be cognizant of how members are perceiving their local ward community. And again, some people are going to see across the ward, there's going to be some people who see it as united, other people who see it as basic. And we need, then that leads to us as leaders, we need to think about how can we create this, a better community for everybody. And that's where the key principles come in of charity, safety, openness, inclusiveness, being present and being purposeful come in. And so ultimately, at the end of the day is leaders maybe need to be a little bit more mindful about how everybody feels about their local community and get more in touch with that and then allow what they learn as they get more in touch with that to drive creating a more intentional community. And that concludes this How I Lead interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I would ask you, could you take a minute and drop this link in an email, on social media, in a text, wherever it makes the most sense, and share it with somebody who could relate to this this experience. And this is how we develop as leaders, just hearing what the other guy's doing, trying some things out, testing, adjusting for your area. And uh, 
that's where great leadership's discovered, right? So we would love to have you uh, share this with uh, somebody in this calling or a related calling, and that would be great. And also, if you know somebody, any type of leader, who would be a fantastic guest on the How I Lead segment, reach out to us. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. Maybe send this individual an email letting them know that you're going to be suggesting their name for this interview. We'll reach out to them and uh, see if we can line them up. So again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact, and there you can submit all the information and let us know. And maybe they will be on a future How I Lead segment on the Leading Saints podcast. And that concludes this throwback episode of the Leading Saints podcast. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three most popular sessions of the Liberating Saints Library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.